0: Morning, everyone. We're going to continue with our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Today's passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reverence of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here and worship God with you here outside. And just as we have been reading and even announced, it has been announced that, This is a wonderful time for us to really see um, God's creation and worship God in accordance to his scriptures. Uh, Before we begin the sermon today, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your word with all diligence and faith that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It's really a beautiful day here, and um, it's not every day we get to do this, and so I'm really thankful that we can do this, and that we can hear uh, the message and the Word of God proclaimed. You know, we're just going through the passage or the, the book of 1 Corinthians or the letter to the First Corinthians. And it just happens to come upon this part here. We didn't move it around. We didn't change it. We're just going down the sermon series because we believe that Scripture, all Scripture, is good for proof, correction, for encouragement. And so this is what we hope that the Spirit will continue to do in our church, especially in our proclamation of the Word and it's interesting because in today's passage, this idea of justice comes out. This idea of justice comes out, and the idea of justice has been on the forefront of many people's minds and attentions as of late. But the idea of justice and righteousness are terms for the Christian to learn from God and His Word. And what is justice? What is righteousness. Do these terms mean the same thing to us as they do to other people? And so because I'm sure that many of you have been paying attention to the happenings of current day society, you may notice that there is a shift that is happening where we are starting to view justice more and more as a limited commodity. It's something to be brokered by those in power. And because the people in power get to distribute this limited commodity as they please, for this reason they'll say that we are getting poor people poorer and rich people richer. To offset this imbalance, one of the solutions is to overturn powers and bring a new form of government, some sort of socialist reform. And for some, this may seem like a viable option because they've adopted this initial premise that justice is a limited commodity and it belongs to the rich and powerful. But how are we to look at this? And why do I put the terms justice and righteousness together? Well, because they belong together. The Bible puts them together. Proverbs 21.15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Psalm 106.3, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Psalm 33.5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In Jeremiah 9, it says, thus says the Lord, Finally, I'll read to you from Psalm 89:14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne; steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. There are of course many more verses that pertain to righteousness and justice in the Bible that you would be able to find, and we've gone over this in Matthew, but righteousness has primar- is primarily has to do with relationship. Justice has to do with our understanding of right and wrong. And you can see that they are correlated because if you want a right relationship with one another, you need to dole out what is fair and equitable. And you know what is fair and equitable by having and knowing the right relationship with God. For these, as we've read, are the foundation of His throne. It seems to me then, that the more we move away from God, whether it's individually, communally, or nationally, or worldly, it seems to me that the more we move away from God, the less we'll know about what is fair and equitable, and the more there will be tumult in our societies. So, as we study God's Word, we would be able to do as it says in Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. And maybe, and maybe we'll start to see that justice and its understanding come from the Lord. And we are to dispense it rightly according to His instruction. And so herein lies the problem of the Corinthian church. They were suing each other. And you might think to yourself, what does this have to do with anything? Well, everything. And this, what is the big deal about this, suing each other? Well, according to the scriptures, it is a big deal it is absolutely a big deal so much so that paul is as paul is addressing the immorality in the church he starts off with this incredible case of incest it's horrific it's disgusting it's deplorable it's bad but right after that case comes this passage so yes i would think that the subject that we are about to talk today Is a big deal. So there's the problem of suing each other, and this letter was written to address the problems of the church. Churches have problems. We have problems. The scriptures were written to correct those problems. It is one of the primary things that the scriptures do. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And it's the purpose, it and its purpose is to make us complete equipped for every good work. But the Corinthian church was not doing that. They were busy taking each other to court. And not only that, their motives were impure. Perhaps then they even convinced themselves that what they were doing was right by suing one another. But not according to the scriptures. Not according to the standards of the holy and righteous God says in verse 8, Paul directly accuses the Corinthians of fraud and wrong. Because in verse 6, brother was going against brother. And that before the unbeliever, the testimony of the church was being tarnished. And hasn't this always been true? I saw this one video of a very famous golfer. I won't name him because everybody knows this famous golfer. Because I'm trying to learn golf, because that's the one sport I can probably play in my latter years. uh, Even though I wish I could play basketball forever. And so I'm trying to learn golf and I'm watching these videos and I saw this one video of a very famous golfer who was walking by his fans and one lady had put out her hand and there was a scrap of paper in it. And he picked it up. This guy is married. And what is our response when we see something like that? It may be, what a guy. It may be, maybe a little sneaky. But it even may be of, wow, he's the goat, or whatever it is, right? But what if this was a professing Christian, or even a leader in the church? Hypocrite! hypocrite it may be even on the news cycle and to be honest and to be honest i think that's fair i think that's fair the people of god has always professed of a holy god and his holy ways and the world will go you're saying that these ways are good saying that it's good to follow them and you're not even doing them some of you after listening to all this Maybe a little discouraged now. Some of you may be very discouraged. Ah, I'm a hypocrite. And yes, yes, you are. The church never publicizes its perfections, but our imperfections get publicized for sure. But that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. In the ancient world, the Jews never went to a public court of law. They went to the synagogue. The synagogue acted as a court. They would never take their issues to a Gentile or outside or pagan court. They figured it out by themselves. In fact, they went as far as to believe that if you took your issues to a public court, an outside court, it was blasphemy against God. Why? Because that meant... The Word of God was not sufficient. It was not enough to instruct them and to teach them how to settle this matter and how to live a holy life. So they figured things out on their own. And the ancient world accommodated them. The Romans and the Greeks would let the Jews arbitrate their own cases. And we even saw this in the case of Christ, when it came to judging Christ. In short of execution, they let them judge their own cases. The Romans treated the Christians the same way as the Jews because they were considered to be a sect of the Jewish party. So even though they didn't have a public court, they were always going and taking each other. The Corinthians were always going and taking each other to court. They just didn't want to settle. They wanted to gouge each other and take advantage of one another. And here we see that they were falling in line with the secular world in their understanding of justice. In Athens and Corinth, as we've been talking about in the past many weeks, but in Athens and Corinth, in these two big, huge cities, these megapolises, there were multiple levels of court, just like we have here in the States. It starts out with a private form of arbitration. Someone like you would get one arbitrator, uh, your party that you were going against would get an arbitrator, and there would be a third party non-related arbitrator. And if that didn't work out, it would move up to a public arbitration. We see something like in these cities, if you became 60, you automatically were eligible to become a public arbitrator. So people who were 60 were supposed to be deemed as a little wiser. They would become public arbitrators. And if that didn't work, then you would move up to jury courts. The jury courts back then weren't like our juries here. They would be juries of something like 200 jurors for a case. There are records of even 1,000 and even up to 6,000 jurors for cases. And to be a juror, you just had to be 30 and above. That would eliminate about half of you, maybe more. But this is the basic thing. Everyone in the city got involved. It became a form of entertainment. Maybe it's not so different from how we publicize big cases in the media today. We're seeing that what was being dragged into the church were worldly philosophies, immoralities, and now even the law system which had never happened before. And as we went over last week, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And now they had become toxic to one another. So what's the lesson here? It is a sin for a Christian To sue another Christian. And if you walked out of here with just that, that's fine. But Paul gives reasons why. The reason why you are doing this to each other is because you do not understand who the church is. And so while it might be easier just to say, don't sue each other. Any kid will ask you after you say that. But why? And so Paul goes into a heavy tone here. The passage that we read starts off with the word tolma. Tolma is translated in your Bibles as dare. It's not the first word that you read in the passage, but it's the first word in the Greek. Tolma is there. So when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? How dare you? would be today's language. How dare you go to the unrighteous for justice instead of the saints, which is translated from the holy ones. This doesn't mean, this does not mean that the pagan or non-believer cannot execute fair judgments. That's not what he's saying. But he is admonishing the church for taking family matters outside. When you were younger, perhaps, you ranted to your friends. You raged about your unfair situation at home. Maybe you raged against your parents. To which, when your friend was listening, would might have responded, yeah, they're so terrible. And then you would say, hey, 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 that's my mom you're talking about, you idiot. And they would be confused. But is this simply a family loyalty issue? The answer is no. In verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know appears six times in this chapter. Do you not know means, don't you, don't you get it? Don't you know who the church is? So do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The saints are going to judge the whole world? What? yes Jesus is setting up his kingdom and his children are going to reign with him and this is when Christ speaks of the church in Revelation 3.21 it says to the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne sitting down is a symbol of rule and to rule quite often entails judging as well Romans 8.17 and if children that's us then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him we also see this in the old testament daniel chapter 7:22 and we've been going over daniel and we finished it this past saturday on our saturdays but it says until the ancient of days came And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27 The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. These are huge seats of honor that the saints are receiving. These are serious places of authority. Someday, the Bible says, we will rule with Christ. We are co-heirs, co-rulers with Christ. Then, can you not handle local matters? Then you don't know the role of the saints. You don't know what the church is. Instead of understanding this, we take our local issues to the pagan court system, thereby exposing what? What does that expose to the world? Our pride, our bitterness, our jealousy, our immorality. And Paul goes on in verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Judge angels? You might think, whoa, is it evil angels like demons? Well, for sure, God will judge evil angels or demons. It says so in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and Jude 1, 6. But angels, if you think about it, they are considered the highest beings in creation order. Paul is showing the gravity of the judgments the saints will be pronouncing And here we are, squabbling over temporal things, unable to settle local matters. And I think that's a good argument. I think that's a fantastic argument. How can you think of lifting 405 pounds five times when you can't even lift 100 pounds once? I say this because I'm very proud of my assistant, in his progress of deadlifting. And most recently, he lifted 405 pounds five times. Soon it will be 1,000. But we'll see. Um, But it's true. How are we able to do... How are we going to be able to do these great things when we can't even settle matters down here? Verse 4. So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This is a verse that may be a little difficult to translate, but the if construction of this sentence actually ends with an imperative verb, meaning Paul isn't really showing contempt. Again, Paul isn't showing contempt for the judges outside the church. It's almost like an ask, a rhetorical ask, of why you wouldn't choose from any among yourselves to arbitrate the case. When has even Christ accepted the standards of the world? This is a mantra that we grow up with. Effect change. Be the change. Effect this change that you want. Effect change is the mantra for all our young people growing up today. And yet the one that effected the greatest change in history when he was on this earth did not go to the state capitol. He did not go to the government branches. He didn't do political marches or participate in a worldly revolution. Where did he go? He went straight to the temple. It was the worship of God that was most important to him. And people killed him for it. Verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers? Shame on you. Shame on you. There isn't one wise person, one wise elder that couldn't settle this dispute. You who claim to be wise with your great knowledge and philosophies, you have to take it outside, and now brother is against brother. Again, tainting the witness of the church, but brother against brothers is directly the opposite characteristic of who a Christian is. 1 John verse 2 and 9. And if you did that Wednesday study with me, it's whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. You're not even acting like a brother. Your fruit, your actions, are rotten. Verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Plato, a few hundred years before, would write, If it were necessary either to do wrong or to suffer it, I should choose to suffer rather than do it. Even the secular philosophies knew that there was something wrong with this. But then you might think, but I've been defrauded. I was robbed. And I'm upset. There is no doubt in my mind that at times you will feel like you have been robbed by another brother or sister. And here Paul is exhorting Christians to take it. Why? And here's what the Corinthian church did not get. When we deal with one another, we deal with one another in love. And while that love can look like discipline in the passage before, even discipline is a form of mercy and an expression of love. And I am not saying that the Christian will have no instances of going to court. This is obviously not true. I got into an accident, a car accident. The other party was a Christian. But we had to go through the insurance agency. So the insurance agency and company, they sued each other to deal with the recompense that was needed. But here's the point. But if your motive is for your sense of justice... What it is, really, is if you're being honest, it's vengeance. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. And if that is your motive, is your motive really to glorify God? Because here's what Jesus says in chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We do not retaliate against brother or sister in Christ. Instead, we're to forgive. And you might ask, how many times do we forgive? And Jesus has an answer for that too, not three, not seven, but seven seventy times. That just means a lot. In Matthew eighteen, Jesus tells of a parable that owed uh, a servant that owed the master ten thousand talents. That was an exceedingly considerable amount of money, even if it was translated to today's. Uh, Currency. One talent was 6,000 denarii. And if you've done the studies with me, one denarii was a full day's work. 6,000 denarii would be 6,000 day, full day's work. That means one talent would be 20 years of work without taking breaks or vacations. 20 years of work. That means 10,000 talents meant he effectively owed the master. 200,000 years of wages. That's like owing somebody the city. It's like, how much do you owe me? You owe me New York City. That's how much he owed the master. That's something that no one could pay. Yet the master, when the servant begged, would forgive that debt. And then this servant that's forgiven would go and find someone that owed him a 100 denarii. That's three-month wages, maybe a little more. And when he found this guy, he would strangle him and throw him in jail. And when the master found, finds out, he would say, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should I not have had mercy? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow student as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And Jesus concludes by saying this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. After hearing all this, you might still think, I'm a hopeless hypocrite. And you, Puge, you haven't relieved anything. And I think that's true. I think that by yourself, you cannot do the things that you are required to do. So you have two options. You can, number one, either give up and walk away from the Lord just like the young rich ruler. Or number two, turn to the Lord now, look to Him, and desperately follow Him. You might think that turning the cheek for you is impossible. But our Lord was mocked and they beat him in the face while covering his face, screaming at him, Prophesy, who hit you? They didn't just take his tunic and cloak, but they stripped him naked. They made him carry the cross on the path where they would eventually hang him from it. But it was God who raised Him from the dead. And now He is seated at the right hand. The suffocating debt that we all carry because our sins have been suffocating us. They are now lifted. And because of Jesus, we are able to follow Him. And because He promises, He promises to give us His strength, We can persevere. He conquered the grave and this is His promise to us because what's the other option? The other option is to follow what's going on now. When things continue to deteriorate, to burn, to get destroyed, that's what happens when an eye for an eye gets really taken to effect. The world goes blind. The world is toothless. But he conquered the grave and he gave his promise to us. And of course, we will face injustice in a fallen world. But we are not to respond in kind, tolerating. We're not to tolerate evil, especially within the church. But we are to respond with compassion and mercy. That's us serving as salt and light in the world. This is our call and commission precisely because of the one who calls us to do it. He doesn't just command us from on high. In fact, he condescended here onto this earth to show us how it is done, completes the work, and promises that we are able to do the same. And so saints, this is your commission to follow Christ all the days of your life. Stick to the word, adhere to it, and may the Lord open the understanding of our hearts as we continue to serve and worship Him all our days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time that we can gather together to give You worship, to look through the Word and what Your Word teaches, admonishes, and how it corrects us. We know that even if we want, it's a difficult in, in fact impossible task but we also know that the promise is that by your Holy Spirit our hearts and minds are transformed so Lord we place our trust in you and we ask God that you would do a mighty saving work within all those that are hearing your word today let's take this time to pray and lift up our hearts in prayer confess to him Confess to him that we need his strength to follow his ways as disciples of Christ. Let's pray.